0: This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelinsky.
1: Ambassador Curtis Chin served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. In doing so, he became only the fourth U.S. Ambassador of Chinese Heritage. As one of the world's foremost experts on the Asia-Pacific region, He now serves as the Asia Fellow of the nonpartisan Milken Institute and works with a range of startups and impact funds in Asia. Curtis joined me for a chat about the US-China trade war, what a deal looks like for both countries, the future of global trade and governance, and how the world should respond to countries that want to break the rules. I also want to say from the outset that I recorded this episode via video link, and so it's a little patchy at times. I hope you enjoy it. Curtis Chin, welcome to Diplomates. How are you?
0: Hey, doing well. Great to be with you.
1: And uh, I should just reference for the audience that um, we're doing this uh, through the the, uh, web chat interface. So you're currently in Bangkok, which is three hours behind Sydney time. So um, thank you for joining us. Um, You're an American in in Thailand, but uh, thank you for joining us as an international guest.
0: No, delighted to be with you. You know, I think with so many of us, it's... uh, uh, one city one day, another city the next day. Um, but very clearly, um, I spend most of my time here in Asia, really Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, I'm with the Milken Institute out of Singapore. Um, but um, yeah, from the U.S., but back and forth between the U.S. Uh, and Asia Pacific. So so great to be with you today, chatting about Asia Pacific, you know, sharing some thoughts on Australia, the rest of the region, and some of the big stories uh, of these weeks. Um, and probably the whole year, which is yeah, front and foremost, uh, China and the US.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's actually a good place to start. So yeah, you're a, obviously an Asia Pacific expert. Um, You've spent a lot of time um, in the uh, Asian region. Big news at the moment, and last certainly the last six or twelve months has been this question of trade, and certainly this trade tensions between uh, China and the United States and what increasingly now looking. Um, like a trade war. So I suppose the first question is, is this a trade war and and what should uh, the world make of the um these sort of these trade tensions between the United States and China?
0: Uh, well, you know, first, let me go back to uh, your comment that uh, I'm an expert. I don't think there's anyone that's an expert in terms of what's going on uh, right now between the u s and China. I mean, it really is, Unprecedented. You know, I was very lucky to serve, you know, primarily in Republican administrations, but I was lucky to serve also uh, in the Obama administration as our U.S. ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. And I'd say, you know, for a long time, Republicans and Democrats, uh, no one's really been a big fan of tariffs. Um, so today we're at a situation where back and forth, whether you call it a, a trade war or let's say a tariffs war, um, we're seeing the United States and China uh, continue to raise uh, tariffs on each other's uh, products. Uh, for me, in the in the short run, clearly uh, not a good thing. Uh, in the long run, my hope is that, you know, both sides will come up with a way that will lead to a more balanced, more sustainable relationship between China and the U.S. But also, you know, if uh, both sides side succeed in moving this forward, it will be to the benefit uh, of the entire region of all of Asia Pacific, including Australia. And you think about countries uh, that, in my view, have become so dependent uh, on China as a source of, you know, purchases of their commodities, you know, Australia comes to mind, but also as a place where you move supply chains because labor costs have become uh, or have been cheaper there. Um, so you've seen this movement over the, what, last decades um, but that needs to change. You know, uh, one, it's already changing even before this tariffs back and forth, uh, because uh, the cost of production in China is getting more expensive. Um, but also I have to say, quite frankly, that as we think about China's behavior, what might have been acceptable two or three decades ago, when clearly China was a poor country, um, is not acceptable today. You know, bluntly, we might say, you know, China, it's time for China to grow up. Uh, and take on some of the responsibilities that come with being, again, a great economic power.
1: It's interesting you said there, you touched on for a long time the the bipartisan consensus in the United States, certainly globally too, is that free trade is good, tariffs are bad, uh, interventionism is bad. What's interesting is, I suppose, firstly, um, you know, and I keen to get your take on this, a lot of people say that this is a Trump thing, but it's actually, interestingly, perhaps the only thing, that both sides of the United States uh, of the aisle uh, politically agree on, which is that um, uh, as it were on trade is popular and, and bipartisan because you, you saw Trump tweeting, as he does, um, about tariffs that he was going to put on and being encouraged by the uh, the House uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer saying he was doing a great thing to keep going. So it's interesting... in a very quick way, to, in a bipartisan way, to have a a more assertive approach to, to Chinese trade uh, in in the United States. So I'm curious to get your take on what that journey is and how the United States has gotten itself to this point.
0: Well, you know, it's, I, I think to your point, it, it's clearly not just a Trump thing. I think President Trump, to his great credit, has really captured Kind of the the moment, the the feeling, the frustration of not just Americans but people all around the world uh, who have tried to engage uh, with China. Clearly, the world has benefited from less expensive products made in China because of you know traditionally what have been lower labor cost. Um, and in many ways, it was a gamble uh, uh, with purchasing products from China, with making products in China, lead also to a more economically, politically, a liberal nation. uh, That gamble has not paid off. Uh, We're seeing a China today that is much more uh, strict in terms of how it treats its own people, in terms of its crackdowns on Christians and Muslims, in terms of its behavior on human rights. Uh, This doesn't, you know, and it shouldn't take away from the successes that China has achieved in lifting really hundreds of millions out of poverty. But again, I think to one of my earlier uh, points, uh, China also has to evolve, China has to grow up. And so Trump has in a way uh, come come into this moment, really perhaps he was the president for this moment. And even China in the past has said this, uh, uh, this trade imbalance between the United States and China is not sustainable because ultimately it will lead to a pushback. And we're seeing that not just in the United States, um, but really throughout the Southeast Asia region in particular, you know, again, I'm based mainly in Southeast Asia. And when I speak to uh, chairman, CEO, senior leadership of Southeast Asian businesses, you also find tremendous uh, support, tremendous sympathy uh, for the points that Donald Trump is made, making. You know, I was out actually recently. Uh, with the chairman of a Southeast Asian uh, company. He stepped down as CEO from his role. Um, And what he said to me was very interesting. He said that in many ways, they would all love to go on record and say what Trump is saying. But China has been a vindictive uh, uh, nation that we've seen records uh, recently of where they've punished companies uh, for doing things that went against uh, China's uh, foreign policy. Um, you know, one specific example would be South Korea. You know, in South Korea, uh, there's a huge conglomerate called Lotte, a big South Korean company, respected company. Uh, the South Korean government uh, to protect its own people made the decision to install uh, kind of like a missile defense uh, system Um, The land that was used was once owned by Latte. So what happened? China sought to punish uh, Latte in terms of its business transactions uh, in China. So just one very real example of how the Chinese government behaves uh, against individual companies. You know, President Trump, to his great credit, is saying, you know, uh, uh, we, the United States, uh, will speak up on these issues. Because in many ways, I think his language was, you know, uh, China has been ripping off the US and too much of the world. Uh, we need to rebalance that. And that rebalancing also will be to the benefit of China itself. I'm sure China is not happy with it being kind of like uh, uh, the country that's increasingly kicked around in rhetoric, not just from the US, uh, but in public and in private uh, in parts of, of Asia. You know, that's not good for China. You know, China really should be embraced uh, for what it has done in terms of lifting millions out of poverty. But its treatment of foreign businesses, both in China and outside of China, really has to stop. Uh, And so, you know, where I would say that I think the Trump administration needs to evolve uh, is they've identified very clearly and spoken out very clearly on the issue. But I think they have to evolve in a way that also brings in their many natural allies to come together to help China move forward uh, in this situation.
1: Now, one of the things I'm curious about, you know, Trump sort of, you know, is always uh, promote himself as the great deal maker, you know. But the, the question of tariffs is obviously that it, it lifts, you know, it sort of punishes the um, the country that's seeking to export for some sort of practice, but at the same time, it obviously lifts prices for households. Now, a figure I saw uh, was that, you know if they end up putting this 25% tariff on all Chinese um, imported goods into the United States, you're talking about $2,500 a year per household uh, increase in the cost of living. I mean, the thing I'm curious about is does this have impl- implications for Trump uh, on, in a domestic policy sense? And also to your mind, you know, what does a deal look like? What is, you know, Trump talks, focuses a lot on, uh, you know, trade deficits, but what does a deal look like? And, you know, and what, what does victory look like in this situation? Because the grievance is clear, but it's not as clear, One, who wins, i.e. do households in the United States get punished? And secondly, what does the deal look like uh, in the minds of Trump or or other experts?
0: Yeah, a number of interesting uh, points you raise. You know, first, uh, when you have tariffs, I'm no fan of uh, uh, tariffs. You know, tariffs ultimately, I hope, are a means to a more balanced relationship between the United States and China. So, you know, there's that question, you know, who pays uh, for a tariff? So, you know, let's say you're selling a product, a, a tariff uh, uh, is imposed, uh, one question will be, can that tariff be passed on to the end consumer, right? Then, of course, the consumer will most ultimately uh, pay. Will that company, though, first try to absorb it because they're afraid of losing the business? It's a little bit more complicated than what people say. Uh, but I also the underscores there are always winners and losers uh, when it comes uh, to tariffs. Um, another interesting point, we talk about, you know, the impact uh, of tariffs on the American uh, consumer. Uh, but, you know, I remember I did one interview where someone said to me, yeah, but don't you benefit from uh, cheap products at Walmart, Morgan you know, It's a big American uh, store. Um, of course we do. Uh, but clearly I can only afford those cheap products if I have a job. And have I lost my job because of all those cheap uh, products? So, you know, it's really kind of a balance that we need to seek and then likewise when people raise the the point of you know will american consumers ultimately in the short-term uh pay you know uh, i wonder you know if people oppose that same interpretation to china uh or is it just china cares less about its consumers and they're thinking that the u.s will worry about its consumers but china will not as it tit for tat tries to raise then tariffs uh, uh, the other way around um, so, 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 you know, I, I think we need to look at the individual winners and losers. I think the Chinese uh, are now trying to target uh, agricultural areas, you know, big support areas for, for President Trump. Um, uh, as you think about the politics uh, of trade also, you know, President Trump, of course, is running for uh, re-election. Election is next year, next uh, November. That's a lot of months before that election uh, to get a deal done. Um, So we'll see how it plays out uh, with this timing. Um, A a, a second point, you know, what will a deal look like? Uh, My fear is that ultimately there will be a face-saving deal uh, where each side claims victory, but really nothing changes. Uh, And so that goes to you, what is success? Uh, um, For me, success isn't simply the Chinese buy a lot more uh, U.S. uh, exports. Right. Uh, um, Clearly, uh, that's a short term win, Um, but it doesn't address the long term issue that many countries, maybe the U.S. at the forefront, but many countries are facing with regards to China, which is theft of intellectual uh, property, which is forced technology transfers, which are non-tariff trade barriers. It's a range of things that uh, companies, whether they're Australian or American uh, or from somewhere in Southeast Asia are facing. For me, a real success would be if some of these things uh, uh, change. You know, there was some uh, uh, talk that actually that the Chinese as part of the negotiation process had agreed to some of this because perhaps they saw that it was in their interest uh, too. Um, and this where, you know, you know, who knows the backstory story in all these uh, reports and tweets. But then you saw uh, most recently, you know, leading up to the latest uh, announcement by President Trump about really uh, a move to impose tariffs on all Chinese uh, exports. Was this point that China reneged, that China moved backwards uh, in terms of edits on a agreement that the negotiators had already agreed to? Um, So, you know, only the people involved will know the truth to that, but I can tell you as a business person who's worked in Beijing, who's worked in Hong Kong, and now worked throughout Southeast Asia, uh, business people from all kinds of companies, American, Australian, and others, have seen that same reality where something that you thought was negotiated with the Chinese counterpart all of a sudden doesn't seem so negotiated as the process moves forward. So I would not be surprised if there was quite a bit of truth to that comment, to that tweet, uh, from President Trump. Uh, the Chinese renege, the Chinese move backwards. Uh, and so again, that needs to uh, to change. So again, when we talk about, you know, what is victory? Victory ideally is a victory for both sides, that both sides, China and the United States can go back to their really important domestic constituencies and said, we've come to agreement, we've moved these things forward. But then ultimately, that victory will be a more sustained uh, trading relationship between United States uh, and China. Hey, you know, one other point I always want to make, though, is that when we look at you know some of the drivers of where we are today. You know, clearly for decades, the Chinese have, in a way, been gaming the system, taking advantage of the system, something that might have been tolerated when they really were a much poorer nation uh, and a less militaristic nation than they are today. So that has to evolve. But I think one thing that we need to think more about more, and hopefully media can talk about more, is that in the world today, uh, exports are both of goods and services. You know, uh, so we talk a lot about things that were made or grown and exported. We also need to think about the services. United States, you know, developing nations uh, are also trying to move this way, but the United States has moved to a developed economy where a lot of the things we produce uh, are services, uh, are uh, intellectual property, are things that again uh, are of great value, of greater. Uh, value added than something simple that might have been made 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So as we talk about uh, the balance between nations in terms of what they uh, import or export, I think we should ideally spend also more time talking about both goods and services versus a focus on the easy number to understand, which is how many you know, uh, uh, you know widgets or bushels of this uh, has a nation uh, purchase um, you know out of all this I, I think back about our evolving you know sense uh, of trade uh, of Asia um, ultimately you know, I say to people uh, things have moved forward it's a positive thing uh, um, Trade has been a wonderful uh, thing but the reality also is that in this more globalized world this globalized economy of ours uh, many people have not done so well. Uh, so Trump has captured that moment and spoken uh, to people about what can he do to fight for them. But I see that across this uh, world of ours, across Europe, but, but very much across here in Asia, where, you know, in the Philippines, you know, had a recent election also, uh, a, a very populist leader. India is going through an election. Uh, Indonesia had its own election uh, where leaders uh, are, have to respond to the vast number of citizens. Who maybe don't see that they've become uh, better off uh, as part of this globalized uh, economy.
1: Yeah, and we've certainly seen that with Brexit as well. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, question of trade and who benefits, and you know, might it looks good in a headline number, but I often say trade destroys and distributes unevenly. And I think there's a lot of people that have been left behind or dislocated, and it's expressing itself in its politics in a worrying sort of way. So I think certainly a lot to think about there for policymakers. One thing I'm curious about is. And you sort of talked a lot about the trade relationship, but it seems to me now that the United States very much considers itself or it sees China now as very much a strategic competitor.
0: And I think, you know, in every U.S. administration, you know, every country around the world, you know, your government, hopefully, uh, is working to give uh, its citizens uh, a better life. Um, and so I, I think what we've seen is this continued. movement to, you know, a richer world, uh, but also a more unequal world. And so you've seen so much talk about inequality uh, kind of bubbling up over these last, really, uh, two decades. And I think we've reached that uh, point where people are trying to look for, you know, what are the drivers uh, of this uh, inequality? How do we address that? And so very clearly the, you know, two biggest economies in the world, China and the U.S., are going to be very much part of that uh, conversation. Um, You know, you raised an intriguing question when you talk about China and the U.S., China versus the U.S. Um, For me, you know, taking a step back, uh, in many ways I see things also as not just China versus the U.S., but a uh, a U.S.-driven system uh, versus an alternative that China is pushing when it comes to concepts of competition economics of trade and governance. Um, and in general, I'd say no country wants to choose and say I'm on the U.S.'s side or on the China's side. Uh, uh, but I would say to nations, I would say the people of Australia and elsewhere, um, really, it's up to you to decide uh, which system is better for your own people. You know, For me, clearly, I'm biased. Uh, I'm for a system of free markets, free trade, and free speech. This is not what China is for. Right. Uh, but often people will say, uh, uh, but I got to follow the money. I got to pay the bills. I got to do what I need to do. It's China that is the big customer. Right. And so that's where people need to think through. You know, it's a very difficult question sometimes. You know, I spoke recently at a Bloomberg event uh, in Singapore on this whole same issue of China and the U.S. Uh, um, and I was struck by one of my uh, fellow panelists, uh, a friend, you know, he's actually, you know, from the Democrat side versus Republican side, but clearly we're both Americans. Uh, uh, Kirk Wagger, the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Singapore, it was very interesting when he made a comment, uh, and that comment was basically Western businesses, when they deal with uh, China, uh, the big question for them is, uh, do you have to sell your soul or to what degree do you sell your soul? So, so I'm paraphrasing his comment, but that's that challenge of, you know, uh, you know uh, um, uh, you're going to make so much money, hopefully, uh, dealing with China. The reality is many companies lose money dealing with China. But in pursuit of that market or in pursuit of that cheaper production base, do you simply look the other way on all the terrible things? that china is doing you know maybe case number one uh we see these days are these reports coming out of xinjiang this northwest part of china of where they put you know by some accounts one million to two million uh people into camps you know some would say concentration camps with all the terrible connotations that you know raises uh from world war ii um but they put people there simply because they're muslim uh that clearly i would hope the world would speak up about uh, but we've seen how uh, Muslim nations, many nations, uh, have looked the other way. Uh, it's China's right, I think one Saudi uh, leader said, uh, as to how they deal with what China perceives as a terrorism threat. Uh, but, you know, uh, for me, you know, um, yeah, maybe I'm not getting any business in the near term in China, because I want to speak up on behalf <laughs> of all Chinese people, right? Whether they're Muslim or Tibetan or Han Chinese, you know, I'm ethnic, uh, people can't see me. We're doing a podcast, but you know, I think my great grandfather uh, went to the U.S. way back when, late 1880s uh, to help build the railroads or something. Uh, um, I'm ethnic uh, Chinese, uh, but but for me, it shouldn't be about your ethnicity the, or really even your nationality. Um, but people should be willing to speak up on behalf of those that really need speaking up on behalf. Uh, so clearly, the Muslims, uh, uh, Tibetans. Um, but even Christians, uh, we're seeing reports that the Chinese have been particularly aggressive in tearing down uh, Christian churches, which they don't recognize. These are all not great things. But what if you want to do business in China? Do you say nothing because you're going to make some money? You know, it's a very difficult uh, question for, uh, for people, again, who have to pay the bills. Uh, but uh, uh, for me, um, you can't, in my mind, simply choose to say nothing because you want the money. Uh, uh, there is some balance in each individual, each company needs to think through what is that. Uh, the, and in the long run, uh, my hope is that all Chinese people will appreciate this notion that every single individual has value. There, there I go. Sounding like an American. Ha! Ah. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's uh, it's
1: uh, it's, it's good to uh, be of your people, but I've just, so curious, you you're you touching quite a bit there about, you yeah, the rule of law, I think, largely. I mean, and the United States has largely underpinned this since World War II, certainly, and the so-called rules-based global order. China's really bumping up against that now. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm sort of curious to, to take on, I mean, where are the areas that you think um, that the United States is prepared to sort of turn the other way? So, for example, if you take the South China Sea, um, where uh, you know Barack Obama, President Obama, uh, sort of didn't do a great deal, as he the Chinese government sort of uh, constructed these uh, artificial islands in the South China Sea, and then militarized those islands, and it has in effect is in effect sort of annexed a part of the South China Sea. I mean, how do you see things of that nature when it comes to getting the, the Chinese government to obey and respect? Uh, maritime law in that instance, where the uh, the uh, the international courts very clearly ruled against China and essentially ignored them. I mean, how do you make your earlier point about China and being need to be responsible, grown up actor? How do you actually enforce that um, with the Chinese
0: government? I think the reality, ian when I go back thinking about that question you asked, the reality is it cannot just be China and the US deciding, right? Uh, what are the regional bodies, global bodies? that can play uh, really a, a shaping uh, role. I mean, the reality is that at the end of the day, and sadly, this goes back to, you know, uh, a statement, even if you think about Chinese history, that power grows out of the barrel of a gun. You know, Mao famously said, you know, in the Civil War uh, in China. Um, and the reality is that when you look at some of our regional uh, institutions like ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, they act by consensus. You know, Many of those nations have a stake in the South China Sea, the you know, Philippines even calls it the West Philippine Sea. But China has been very aggressive uh, in building up, uh, uh, I don't know what we call them, islandettes, or little islands or fake islands, I don't know. Uh, and then uh, despite saying they wouldn't, moving to militarize them. Uh, but China's got the guns and maybe other countries Don't have the guns or they want Chinese investment. So, how do they deal with that? Um, But to your point, I would hope that a nation, let's say like Australia, uh, can step up Uh, its, you know, uh, what we call like, you know, freedom of the seas, you know, freedom of navigation, uh, uh, trips to the South uh, China Sea, Um, that nations uh, uh, throughout the region um, can seek to come together to engage with China. The Chinese strategy has always been one of like picking off countries. Some would argue that ASEAN already has in a way been nullified because China has bought out Laos and Cambodia. And for a association that acts by consensus, uh, if Cambodia has in the past done, said, well, no, no, we're not going to issue a joint statement because we, Cambodia, don't agree. Um, It blocks uh, efforts. So hopefully that will uh, evolve and all. Um, your question also raised this uh, point about uh, systems and organizations and governance. You know, one you know I know very well is this whole issue uh, of. You know how will we support uh, and fill that uh, the, the financing gap? How will we support the building uh, infrastructure in a region when there's been a big gap of the region's uh, infrastructure needs and how they will be financed? You know what? So four years, you know, two under uh, nearly two under Obama and nearly two under Bush, uh, I served as our U.S. ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. For those who don't know, that's kind of kind of like an Asia Pacific based, you know, Philippines headquartered uh, uh, version of the World Bank. Primarily focused, you know, on ending poverty in this region, uh, mainly through building infrastructure. You know, a lot of core infrastructure: roads, power, water systems, uh, sanitation. You know, really uh, doing uh, good things there. But how do you build those infrastructure uh, uh, projects? Um, so, you know, World Bank, uh, Asian World Bank, they're all in this region. But the last couple of years, we've seen uh, Chinese rivals. Uh, uh, and so we've uh, first and foremost seen the rise of the Asian Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank. Uh, we've seen something called the New Development Bank. Some people call it the BRICS Bank after Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the key players there. That one's based out uh, of Shanghai. We see moves by the bilateral uh, um, uh, finance institutions like the Chinese Development Bank. So that would be just working with one country. Uh, versus these multilateral uh, banks. So we're seeing a lot of new players uh, challenging that old, what they call those old Bretton Woods type institutions um, uh, to finance and move Asia forward. In many ways, that's a good thing. Hopefully it makes some of those old bodies like my my old colleagues at the uh, ADB a little bit more uh, hungry, innovative, uh, focused on on acting quicker uh, to serve the needs of this region. But it's a bad thing if what it is, it's also a push uh, to the bottom, uh, who will get the money out the fastest. Um, you know, when I was on the board of the Asian Development Bank, I'd visit a nation, whose I engage more with the Ministry of Finance as they seek to get funding for key infrastructure projects. Um, you know, ADB, I think to its great credit, uh, like the World Bank and others, you know, will try and push for certain, what we call safeguards. So if you put in an infrastructure project, um, the environment uh, would in some ways be protected. There be uh, The lingo today is ESG, so there'd be like environmental, social, governance safeguards uh, uh, put in place. These are all uh, uh, good things. Uh, but then it takes, uh, it makes a project uh, take a little bit longer to develop. Um, so if you're a country just in search of financing, uh, what if all of a sudden a Chinese-backed bank says, no, 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 no. Uh, we don't care about those, uh, uh, ESG, those safeguard standards. We trust you as the borrowing, uh, country to decide what's right for your own people. So there's some, uh, you can see there would be sympathy for that. You know, you decide what's right for your own country in terms of protecting the environment based on your own, uh, spot in that kind of development, you know, uh, line. Um, uh, but then the Chinese might say, but, uh, if we do the financing for you, um, maybe Chinese state-owned enterprises were going to do a lot of the work. Maybe it will mm-hmm. come with 500 to 1,000 Chinese employees uh, and workers. Uh, so I think any nation, you know, they decide. Right? It's their money. They ultimately have to pay it back. Uh, uh, so but read the fine print. Uh, so don't think that because maybe the Chinese aren't insisting on certain safeguards that others might, that it doesn't come with other things that they might well insist upon. Um, and so that's how it should be, as long as it's transparent, as institutions are accountable. That's how it should be. Let the market compete. What the big problem is, though, we're beginning to see it even in China's you know, much vaunted uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. This is their big infrastructure funding push, is that what if decisions aren't made uh, fairly? What if corruption is involved? What if, you know, uh, 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 money changes hands? And case in point has been what we've seen has happened in Malaysia. You know, in the last year or so, uh, Malaysia brought back uh, its uh, longtime uh, prime minister, probably the oldest prime minister in the world now, Mahathir, uh, came back in, was swept, uh, uh, his party back into government, uh, overturning the rule, uh, uh, I think for decades, uh, of what is now the Opposition Party. And when Mahathir came back in as leader of Malaysia, he, uh, uh, he raised questions, uh, certainly raised eyebrows in China, but he raised questions about some of the big infrastructure deals that were signed uh, uh, by his predecessor, Najib, with the Chinese uh, uh, government. Um, and to his great credit, forced renegotiations. And so one that's come up most recently is I think shorthand it's called like an East Rail a project, you know, uh, uh, you know, really so much money in these huge infrastructure projects. Mahatir was ultimately able to shave the cost of the uh, product or project. Not exactly apples and oranges, because the the project did change somewhat, but shave the cost of that product project by a third. Uh, uh, and so it makes you wonder where was that extra third? You were talking really tens of millions of dollars. Where was that money going? You know, hmm. into Chinese pockets, into construction company pockets, into Malaysian uh, uh, pockets. And then a question for the region, you know, for countries that haven't had this kind of democratic revolution, bringing back a, an old prime minister, you know, focused now on corruption. What about all those countries with deals under the One Belt, One Road initiative that haven't had a mahatir to try and renegotiate and bring those costs down by a third? Uh, Where has that money gone? Uh, And so these are some of the the questions that I I think, you know, individual citizens may well raise when they see deals signed with China. But sadly, in so many nations, those citizens are ignored, right? Because the deal is done with leaders and those leaders know for good and for bad uh, where that money uh, has gone or will be going. Uh, um, so yes, China can be a constructive uh, force uh, in this region, but for that to uh, to happen in this changing world of ours, China too must evolve. And so bringing this all kind of full circle to how we began, talking about China and the U.S. Clearly, we see this rivalry between the China between the Chinese and the U.S. governments at this time. Hopefully it's not a rivalry between the peoples of these two nations, uh, where people just want a better life for themselves. Uh, But it's also a rivalry, I believe, between different systems. Uh, So uh, this Chinese system is one, again, of subsidizing their own uh, companies. To what degree uh, is that acceptable or should it be acceptable? And then how do you have a level playing field uh, when you're up against a state-owned enterprise that's completely subsidized uh, by uh, the second largest economy in the world? I think these are important questions that, again, are not just U.S. versus China questions. Um, And hopefully, they're questions that are also being asked within China. But we're seeing now in some of the reports uh, that are coming out of China, you know, few and far between, uh, uh, where China itself is cracking down on its own Chinese economists uh, and th- their own people uh, who would dare challenge uh, uh, what Xi Jinping is pushing uh, through right now. You know, so as I think a, a Chinese-American, uh, a somewhat Asian-American, someone who's living in both the U.S. and Asia, uh, I in particular, you know, want China Uh, to move forward and succeed to succeed just like every other nation but china must evolve Uh, and my hope is that it will be done peacefully um versus all the turmoil that china has gone through this last century Uh, my hope is that that does not come back and in a weird way that may be what xi jinping fears but is he putting in place a system which might encourage or increase the odds of that coming back. A case in point, you know, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, president of China, pushed through um, a way for him uh, to serve as really president for life. Um, So in a way, governance has moved backwards in China in the old days. You know, Xi Jinping has a lot of rivals uh, within China that uh, that uh, maybe aren't so happy with how he's uh, done things. You know, this U.S.-China back and forth, this trade war really emerged under his watch. Um, So there's a lot of questions even within China about how he's doing things. Um, But those people are increasingly kind of squashed. Uh, In the old days, if you were a senior Chinese leader, maybe you'd wait out whoever the president was. You'd wait, you know, five years, you'd wait 10 years. Um, But that has now changed. Uh, Maybe there is no waiting out Xi Jinping. And so are people moving, sadly, back to that old system? Are they trying to bring him down, stab him in the back? Things that are not good. Uh, because that's how China, he's evolved. It's evolved backwards and it's gone back to the system where actually it's almost like there's a new emperor in town, that emperor is Xi Jinping. And what happened to emperors in the past? They either died or were overthrown. Uh, um, so that's not a good thing uh, for China. And I think no one should welcome turmoil uh, in China. And so again, it's in China's own interest uh, to rethink about how it treats not just the US but how it treats all its neighbors. Uh, um, The Chinese version of rule of law is not one that I would hope the world seeks to emulate. Um, We look right now at an imprisoned, uh, out on parole, I think, uh, what the technical term is, but a uh, imprisoned Huawei, this big Chinese tech company, CFO in Canada. Under the Canadian version of rule of law, I think that Huawei executive has just moved from one of her uh, multi-million dollar houses in Vancouver to another multi-million dollar house uh, in Vancouver, while she goes through the Canadian legal process. As will she be extradited to the United States regarding charges of which was she really directly involved in her companies uh, trying to avoid uh, sanctions uh, on Iran, creating shell companies, all these things. Right. So the rule of law is proceeding. Meanwhile, in China, uh, um, and I dare say it's not coincidentally, uh, uh, but connected, uh, China has retried one Canadian, I think sentenced him to death. Uh, China is now putting, uh, I think, two Canadian citizens uh, under arrest, alleging that they're spies. Um, uh, There was one, uh, I think, social media post, that's never always, as you know, never sure Uh, how accurate some of these posts are, but this particular social media post uh, contrasted the treatment of those Canadians uh, under the Chinese version of rule of law uh, versus the Huawei CFO, her name is Meng, CFO Meng uh, under the Canadian rule of law. And so I say to countries, I say to people as you think about the systems that are really contending now a Chinese way of doing things a Western uh, way of things. Uh, um, what is better uh, for you? Um, and so, uh, um, my hope is that this notion of uh, East versus West isn't one really of East versus West. It's really what's right for a nation. Uh, um, and as I think about even one person, you know, I did a, I did a uh, interview when someone said to me uh, on air, you know, well, isn't this stealing of property by the Chinese cultural? And I had to push back, you know, one, because I'm ethnic Chinese. Uh, But you think about what does that mean, culture? Uh, uh, Because very clearly when I go to a a dynamic place like Singapore uh, or a dynamic place like Hong Kong or Taiwan, uh, mainly Chinese people, ethnic, you know, Han Chinese people, uh, I don't see them ripping off and stealing uh, uh, other uh, countries uh, or other companies, other countries' companies, Intellectual property, like you do in, in China. So if, it, if it's cultural, it's because of a business climate that the communist Chinese have created. It's not because people are ethnic Chinese or Caucasian or whatever. Well, and I think that's how we need to look at things, you know, uh, in order to move things forward. And again, I keep coming back to that to this point that uh, moving things forward are also in the interest of the Chinese uh, people. Uh, And so it's always intriguing where people say that, you know, uh, how long will U.S. citizens stand for tariffs if indeed those uh, higher costs are passed on uh, to them? Um, But then we can throw that same question at the Chinese. How often will Chinese citizens uh, uh, stomach and tolerate all that their leaders do that then imposes higher costs and burdens on them, whether it's the money they spend, the lives they live, or what they can say. Um, And unlike in a democracy where the the Chinese says, no, we want to change things, we'll we'll have different leaders. Uh, um, How do people change things uh, in China? Uh, uh, The track record has not been good uh, when it's been a system where the Chinese people uh, uh, have no way to peacefully speak up. Uh, And that's the challenge uh, for our world today.
1: So the question I have, so you sort of talked a lot about this sort of competing models and and the hope that I suppose over time the theory always was that China would gradually adopt uh, Western norms uh, of global leadership and rules based order. The thing that you know, is curious in all this is that you know the U- United States has always been the underwriter of these systems and it's always had great confidence in these systems. One of the great strengths of the United States model of global leadership has been its alliance system. Now talked a lot about Trump's uh, approach to, um, you know, the strategic rivalry with China. But one of the things I got like your input on is Trump's administration's approach to the United States friends and the way that it has attacked NATO allies, that has attacked um, allies in the Asia region, such as South Korea, for not pulling their weight, etc I mean, how can um, the United States friends, um, you know, believe in the system that the United States is China to adopt and expect China to adopt a system that perhaps the United States itself uh, seems to be walking away from somewhat.
0: I don't know if the, uh, uh, the United States is walking away from uh, a system Uh, that we've all benefited from, you know, uh, uh, this global trading system. Um, But very clearly, the United States is saying it needs to be, you know, changed uh, and fixed. You know, one case of point I look at is, you know, think about all these global bodies. Um, And that's where my hope, you know, we talk about West versus East. But I hope some of these global bodies are really seen as global bodies. Because I think part of the challenge is we say it's a Western system. Well, I'm from the East. I don't want that system. Right. But I would argue Mm. that things like human rights, you know, free speech, you know, uh, uh, worship, you know, whatever you want, uh, uh, your religion, whatever your faith is, isn't a Western concept, uh, but that I hope would be more universal uh, concepts. Um, So going back to your point so one of the institutions that I think needs to evolve, uh, one example would be the World Trade Organization. Right. And I think even the WTO leadership. Uh, has said, yeah, we need to change too. And it's the Trump administration that is pushing for some of these changes. One example would be under WTO rules right now, uh, China is still treated as a developing nation. So maybe it's allowed to do certain things and can it have more state-owned enterprises, more support for state-owned enterprises than a developed nation can. Um, so doesn't that need to change? Um, for me, it's kind of ridiculous also that uh, this second largest economy in the world that is China, and some would say largest economy based on purchasing power parity, that this nation still borrows money from the World Bank, still borrows money from the Asian Development Bank, Um, um because it says, oh, we're a poor country. So again, it goes back, I think, to these uh, metrics. Um, but very clearly, China has resources that other nations do not have. You know, China, again, amazing, you know, has put this like little rover on, I think, the far side of the moon. And yet it still borrows money uh, from the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank because it says, oh, we're a poor country. We need these subsidized loans uh, to help us fight poverty. Right? And so I think these institutions need to change, WTO, ADB, World Bank, and how they treat uh, a nation uh, like China. And what's great about these rules-based organizations also, it would be that it's not just about China. If we were another nation in that same kind of role as they move up, they also should, in a sense, graduate uh, from these kinds of assistance like grants and subsidized uh, loans. Um, And so I think we think about this, you know, China and the U.S. I think that's part of the challenge that right now, because of these tariffs, it's seen as China versus the U.S. But in many ways, uh, there will be many allies in in this uh, battle if they could speak freely. And also many more allies, in a sense, if the Trump administration, to your point, I think were more adept in how it handles its longtime allies and friends. You know, uh, um, the U.S. relationship with Australia Uh, with Thailand, uh, with Singapore, with the Philippines. These are relationships that will continue to evolve, um, but really are foundations uh, for moving things forward in a way that would, I think, benefit uh, the countries involved, but also benefit this region, this Indo-Pacific region, uh, as well as the world.
1: So one question I want to ask you, you are a member or you have an involvement in the International Republican Institute, the IRI, which is responsible uh, promoting democracy globally. I mean, there's a sister organisation, the idea the Democrats' version of them. Um, you know, traditionally, people have always thought that, you know, China would grow rich and then it would grow democratic. Uh, what we've seen as it's grown richer, unfortunately, it's become more autocratic. You touch, touch on the fact that Xi has made himself emperor for life. You're, you know, your sort of background in what makes democracy great and, and, and how democracies flourish, do you hold out any sort of hope? Is there anything to hope for if, for people that want to see China uh, become more democratic or is that just they lost hope now to your mind?
0: Um, well, uh, one, uh, going back, you know what, uh, both the International Republican Institute and this uh, National Democratic Institute, I mean, they both come um, uh, under this umbrella, you know, National Endowment for Democracy, which really comes out of uh, uh, some of the work way back when, you know, how I began my like uh, career as like an intern Uh, Under uh, Ronald Reagan. But something that Ronald Reagan sought to encourage was the spread of uh, democracy. So these are uh, uh, nonpartisan uh, groups, even though one sounds Republican, one sounds Democrat. Um, And their job really is to encourage uh, democracy. But I think more importantly, and this goes to the heart of your question, uh, to encourage institutions uh, and systems and processes that allow democracy uh, to flourish. You know, uh, I'm usually always like the most hopeful person in the room, even though like the room's falling apart. Um, And so I'm always hopeful uh, (laughs) that things uh, will be moving uh, forward. Um, But I think it's important that we talk about democracy, that we realize that democracy is not just elections. Uh, Democracy is about, uh, um, you know, Balance. It's about uh, systems, checks and balances. It's about institutions, um, and so like the work of both uh, IRI and DI would be things like encouraging political parties. Doesn't matter which party you are, uh, but enusing, uh, encouraging political parties uh, to think through the use of research, degree that you know it's allowed or easily done in a given country, so that they can better understand what citizens are worried about, what they're concerned about, and then think through how they can best address uh, those concerns. You know, it's about how do you strengthen uh, a democratic process where people don't like whoever is running? There's a chance to get rid of uh, that person. But, yes, I'm hopeful uh, for China in the long run. Um, but clearly what we've seen in this last, what, uh, five years is, uh, is a China that's become much more uh, economically assertive and militarily aggressive uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, And so what will happen over time, the reality is that it won't just be China and the U.S. contending. It will be the other rising powers uh, in this increasing what they call multipolar world that will also have to contend with a rising China. Uh, You know, one day we'll see India come into its own we will see Indonesia, the largest economy in Southeast Asia, come into its own. How will China engage with an India, uh, with an Indonesia, with a stronger uh, ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations? Uh, how will they deal with this? You know, probably one of their biggest headaches uh, is their friend North Korea. Uh, at the end of the day, I believe. You know, here I'm being hopeful again. Uh, I believe that Korea will be united one day. Uh, but clearly, when it unites, the reality will most likely be a democratic, capitalistic, uh, uh, more in a way, uh, westward-oriented uh, democracy versus the model that uh, China and North Korea itself now present to the world. And so, really what holds back these two nations uh, from coming together, North Korea and South Korea, uh, is China uh China would probably prefer uh, kind of a somewhat uh, unstable uh, North Korea on its borders than united westward-looking Korea. And so China has a lot of headaches, you know, uh, to contend with. Uh, this trade war uh, is really just one of them. Um, and as you think about the calendar of this year, China has so many uh, worries to contend with. Uh, An anniversary of the June 4 Tiananmen, you know, uh, I say massacre, you know, Chinese don't like that word, incident, some will say, Uh, but we think about uh, the June 4 anniversary uh, coming up. When you think about labor unrest uh, in China, you know, Xi Jinping is in a very difficult situation and maybe in some ways much less secure and stable uh, than he would like the world uh, to think he is. Um, And so this... uh, trade war at a time of an already slowing but still growing uh, Chinese economy is not good for him uh, either. And so uh, maybe he will pursue the route of again trying to unite the Chinese people in a very nationalistic uh, way. You're seeing some of the rhetoric uh, coming out of China. Oh, China will never uh, down. Uh, very national, trying to unite uh, his own uh, people against an enemy with the reality that maybe his biggest challenge is what's happening at home uh, in his country.
1: Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I could probably talk to you about this all day, I think. Um, there's so many fascinating different areas we could go to, but, of course, you're a busy man, you've got things to do. So, um, as I always do, very clunkily segue to the the fun part of the show. I get a lot of uh, good feedback on this uh, really lame question that I ask everyone, but, of course, you're an American guest on our show, just curious about the three Australians that are coming to Ambassador Curtis Chin's barbecue <laughs> and uh, and why. And I should disclose <laughs> earlier. He said, "What if I can't think of three Australians?" I said, "Well,
0: yeah. What best. if I can't think? <laughs> what if I can't think of uh, three Australians?" Um, but yeah, you know, I, I kind of laughed uh, when you asked me that question earlier uh, because in the United States, when we think of Australians, they're like people we've taken from Australia, uh, like Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban. But I think it's a, wasn't Keith Urban actually born in New Zealand? Uh, But, you know, I think they live in Tennessee right now. So I'm going to cheat and only give you two. But because they live in Tennessee, I bet they have some of the best barbecue (laughs) in the United (laughs) States. So I'd certainly love to have them because then maybe we wouldn't talk politics and we wouldn't talk about China uh, and the U.S. And we just have a great time. uh, Well, it's funny you should say that. American-Australian hospitality.
1: (laughs) It's funny you should say talking about it. um, you know, Americans stealing Australians because Australia is very famous for stealing New Zealanders, um, like Russell Crowe. So it's sort of,
0: <laughs> it's all just one well, big that's I think one. Keith Urban, I think he's really a New Zealander. I don't know what he is, but. I'm not sure. Like but Nicole, cute, Nicole Kidman is Australian for sure. I don't know, maybe she's maybe absolutely American. Maybe they both became Americans. I don't know. But, you know, uh, yeah, let me close by just saying, you know, that U.S.-Australian relationship, uh, you know, is a great one. It's a solid one. I think the United States, we can learn, From Australia. I mean, look at your economy. You haven't had a recession in a long time. Uh, A lot, though, has been driven by China. And so also how will Australia deal with this evolving economic uh, world? Uh, um, Australia also, I think for a while, like kept changing its prime ministers. I don't know. It seemed like there was a new one all the time. Uh, But maybe that's also a broader point for all of us, that no matter who's in charge, things will be okay. Uh, if we leave it to the own people, our own people to run things, you know, just Australian, American, Chinese, whoever, uh, they just want to move things forward, but maybe it's the politics uh, that gets in the way of uh, everything. And sometimes when government does nothing, maybe things just move on forward.
1: A very positive message of hope to finish on there, Curtis. Thank you so much for joining Diplomates, mate. All right, my pleasure. Take care. Take care, mate.
0: You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions.